record on this. Cool. And welcome back to No More Nonversations. Got my buddy Dave Bailey joining me today. How you doing, Dave? I'm doing well. How are you? Doing well, doing well. Um, so we'll jump right in. We've had a lot of great conversations over the past couple of weeks uh, regarding um, the educational process, things that can be taught in schools, um, critical race theory, the, uh, the history of the nation, uh, interracial relationships, and um, basically just how we should engage in, in America in general to move forward. So um, I guess to start out, um, let's pick up on holidays. Um, <laughs> that, was, that was one of our, uh, that was the, one of the topics that we talked about last time. Um, and I was kind of the, of the position that, you know, if, um, if we're, it was, it was started with Christopher Columbus, not, you know, right. giving him a holiday when you really consider his, uh, his role in American history, but you think that um, you know, we, we should keep him, correct? Yeah, well, I think it, the, there's two questions we're trying to answer here. One is the worth of holidays or, you know, um, holding anybody up as heroes, I think was your point, which I, I might have some agreement with you on that. I think we are way too hero, hero worshiping, particularly of individuals, and we individualize everything instead of deal with the principle and the, the main point behind why we are celebrating something. And so I think if we, you know, I think that's one part of the discussion, which we, you and I actually, I, especially from sort of a libertarian viewpoint, I kind of agree with that. I think we way too much hold up heroes. Uh, but the second part of that was what are we celebrating on Columbus Day? And so the, that was where we started and then kind of went beyond that and saying all holidays. So I think those are almost two separate subjects. If we are going to have holidays, which ones are worthy of having a holiday for? Because if you're going to, you know, you can't have holidays for everything, although it feels like we're going to be at some point we're having holidays a lot more now. But, you know, at some point you're selectively picking which holiday you have and which ones you don't. And so I think that's where the conversation, uh, the reason why, so just getting to Columbus Day, I, I think it's been sort of two problems with why that Columbus Day has been under attack. And I think it mostly comes from an attack on Western civilization, which I think is by far honorable to celebrate and probably more so now than ever before in our history. I think the, there's a value in understanding the problems with history. There's a value in understanding the context but there's also a value in honoring certain th milestones that were crossed and certain things that should be emulated or uh, upheld. I think that's true in sports. I think that's true in everything. You, you have a, an ideal and there's a difference between the ideal and the man or the individual. And I think those are, that's where some of the disagreement or, or crosstalk happens. I don't think the arguments against or for are really talking about the same thing. So I know that was a mouthful, but. <laughs> so you, you said that you think that um, there is a, an attack, like it's important to honor them because you think there's kind of attack on Western modernization. Is that what I heard? Western civilization. What, Western yeah. civilization. Yeah, and, I, um, and, and partic particularly every question needs to be asked in compared to what? It's kind of a, kind of a Thomas Sowell axiom is compared to what? You can't take any, subject out of context can't take put it in a vacuum and saying 
compare it to the ideal or compare it to some utopia that doesn't exist. So I think Western civilization was a milestone that deserves to be saluted. And it's being, the, the opposite is having more detrimental effects than really standing up for it. So I think more now than ever, it needs to be stood up for. Like in what ways, because I haven't seen personally, I, I don't feel like there's been an attack on Western civilization. So what are you classifying as uh, attacks against Western civilization? Oh, I think almost everything has an anti-capitalist kind of undertone to it. And Western civilization and capitalism is as defined by free market capitalism, not by crony capitalism, not by a lot of things that are called capitalism today. It's not when the government gets together with the business and puts it together. It's when free people interact in commerce. And capitalism is just the extension, really, of, of, of freedom, of individual freedom, not group freedom. And so Western civilization and, you know, I would argue Judeo-Christian, uh, the, the emergence of Judeo-Christian values and um, throughout time was, was novel in that respect and unique. And I even use the word exceptional, which I knew you kind of jumped when we had this conversation before, because it, it has a different connotation, I think. Um, but it's, it's exceptional in that it's unique to anywhere in the world at the time. And, and I would argue still to this day in many respects. Um, it doesn't mean that you lived up to the ideals. In fact, generally, man will always fall short of its ideals. And, um, but it's worth shooting for those ideals. So Western civilization is, I think, under attack in that capitalism is. The idea of free people interacting is. We can get into free speech and all all that comes with that. You know, when I was flying back and forth between China, I did a lot of travels to Asia a while ago for a um, business I was involved with. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the business was going over and talking to young people over there. Really, we were, I was working for an investor here and we were finding businesses and really mentoring young, guy, young guys and gals that were really, you know, were doing some amazing things. But we got into all these discussions, but on the flights between the, the countries, businessmen in the U.S., you know, people that work for Accenture or Goldman Sachs or anybody that, you know, was doing something kind of big over in, in China, um, were emulating the China model. We're, we're talking about how great it was that they could build a bullet train between Hangzhou and, and then Shanghai without a lot of interference from those pesty people that they might be, you know, tearing down their homes to put the train through. And, you know, it sort of reminded me of an argument from history when fascism and things were taking root that, hey, it was super efficient at first. And you can be very efficient if you trample on individual rights for a period of time. It also reminded me of when I worked for Toyota years ago in the 80s and how, Toyota, or how Japan was going to take over all the, wor uh, the world with Japan Inc., and, which is sort of a, a nicer version of fascism in a way. Um, just a corporate fascism over in Japan at the time. And um, so you do have both at the, I, I think at the elite level, a, a deference for, we'd like to have more of an authoritative state versus really true capitalism. Um, so that's why I think it's more than ever. It, it's not just coming from college campuses and young people who don't seem to know what socialism was and what it did over this last century it's coming from both ends and so that's why i think it's it's truly under assault
Yeah, and you know, under assault, I don't know if, if I'd agree with that term because I mean, I, I see a challenge is different from an assault. I definitely feel that, you know, there's probably some capitalistic values or ideals that are being challenged. Um, but, but I don't know about assaults. And then on top of that, like there are aspects of socialism in our, in our country. I mean, that's what social security is, right? Yes. So it's, it's, there's, there's like some good aspects. Cause I mean, I absolutely feel that capitalism is a, uh, is a good thing, but there's, it's just been take, it's been like perverted. It's been taken to the extremes to where we are, where we are trampling on people, but we're doing it in a, in a classy way, but it almost seems comparable to what China was doing when they weren't, you know, having to ask people to take over their property and just build a bullet train because it's what they thought that was best for, for the country or the economy. But it almost seems like we're doing that, but we're just calling it something different. Yeah, Michael, your, your voice is going in and out. I don't know if it's on my end. It's probably, probably better. Uh, yeah, it seemed that it was too close. kind of going back and forth. Yeah. Yeah, I'm still trying to figure out this thing. Yeah, I, it might be my end too. I don't know. Um, yeah, I mean, look, I, I'm generally a libertarian. I'm not generally. I am a very libertarian, almost anarchist in the way I view the way um, in my ideals of philosophy. I don't think it's practical in a lot of cases. So when you do quote Social Security, I might argue with you that's not been well played. But I do understand that there's some... Uh, there are some places for socialism. Um, I think if you have an 80 year old woman or a 80 year old man that knows no one, uh, we're, we're going to take care of them. And probably the only way you can, although this is even arguable is through a safety net that the government needs to provide for the helpless, for the truly helpless. Although I do think they push out charities and individual initiative almost all the time that they get involved. And when I say they, the government gets involved. So like, almost by definition, it pushes out the elements that were there that would take be, do a better job of taking care of the elderly and, and, and the, the, the downtrodden or, or those that need that safety net. So I'm not, I guess, a purist in that there are elements of socialism that are necessary, but we are way, way, way beyond that. And I don't think the, you know, a, a lot of what, needs to be focused on is if you're playing a you know football game basketball game or you got to look at the scoreboard every once in a while a lot of ideas sound good but the results are horrible i think in terms of the great society and all the programs that have been put in place they don't have the desired outcome even though they might have been well-intentioned and so i think a lot of things we're going to talk about i think the idea is well does that lead to a good a better place and not, a, not that we're in a perfect place, not that, you know, the, the economy is in a perfect place, but I think we'd be a heck of a lot better off if we had more true capitalism in this country. And I would put, you know, when I say capitalism, I think one of the enemies of capitalism is big tech, is the way that once corporations get so big, they cozy up way too well with, with government and they write, the, they write the laws, they write the regulations, they manage the legal system. I'm a small, you know, I own a small company. I compete against big companies. The deck is completely stacked against the small guy. If you go to court and you're fighting, a, you know, you have a dispute with a, a large company, they can tear up a contract right in front of your face and you're not going to really be able to execute. You're not going to be able to 
even though you, you look at the contract and it looks like you would win, defending it is a whole nother thing. And so the laws are stacked against the small guy. And I would probably find agreement with you that we should get together and get rid of all the, all the advantages that are given to the powerful and the large. We'd be a better place if we really empower the disruptors <laughs> and the people that are putting it all on the line, but maybe don't want to fit into the, the corporate kind of, uh, you know, um, uh, the corporate kind of formula that I think is, is, is also a cancer on the society right now. So a lot of the dispute we might have is capitalism working or here's pain points, here's where it's failing. Um, I, I might agree with you. I, I think we would disagree on the solution. Okay, fair. So in when you're classifying something as like a, if we had an environment in which there was, you said, pure capitalism. Do you basically mean like where the the small company is able to compete uh, like with the large company without the large company just bending, making everyone else bend to their will? Is that kind of what that means? Well, sure. Like if you look at a Facebook, the guys, you know, Zuckerberg started that in his dorm, kind of stole it from some other guys at Harvard. He started off as a, almost a gag and he took off and he did, did great with it. Right. But mm -hmm. he was a get, he was about, you know, going around all the rules that you could possibly go around. And uh, then he gets to, to be the billionaire and write the rules. And now it's calling for regulation. The reason he's calling for regulation is because he doesn't want the next guy in his dorm room trying to create the next Facebook or next social media that would disrupt him to have, he, he's, he's, he's protecting his flank. And Google, when they wrote, you know, when they wrote that we'll do no evil, you know, watch anybody that says that because the next thing that comes down is probably something evil. And I, I think they all get to a point, it's almost natural because it is a very strong, it, it works. They can, they have lobbyists, they can put, write the rules, they can write the regulations. They have the lawyers to withstand all the things you have to do. It literally is almost impossible for a company my size to completely operate within all the rules. You have all the regulation and, and paperwork and things that just will overwhelm you if you're trying to deal in kind of any kind of space that requires any kind of interaction with regulation. And, you know, the way the big companies can is they have a huge budget for lawyers and, and, um, and, and they know the, the, the people to go to. So it, it's, that is a real problem. Um, and now that you have also, I think, government that's all too willing to sort of cozy up to corporate types and not just do the regulations and the rules, but um, sort of fun things together and talk about co-opetition between, it all sounds good, but what they're really doing is pushing down and the, the little guy does not have that, that, that advantage. If you're trying to put a stadium here in Austin or, or you know, in other cities, you know, that billionaire or big corporation trying to put, they get all the tax advantages. Tesla gets tax advantages for being here in Austin. Uh, where does that come from? It, uh, you, the advantages to the small guy does not, they don't have that. If I was a small car company, electric car company trying to compete with Tesla, I would not have near the, the I mean, Tesla is Tesla mainly because of a lot of the, the government subsidized them to the point where they were successful. Um, 
So I, th that's a real problem, um, in my opinion. So, so what is, cause I mean, what is, I, I think we did agree on that is that there's just, you got to take the corporate money out of politics um, because it just makes things completely slighted. So what would be your solution to this problem? Well, I would take the politics out of the corporation. Okay. I think the problem is we got too much, we have too many politicians. We have too many, too many things are controlled by politics. So as, this is where my libertarian side comes in. If you shrink government, you, if you shrink the number of laws, if you shrink the power of a politician at every level, you're going to have real innovators step up and you're going to have, I think, a lot of the interference created by those politicians um, not, as, not as tough to get around. So I don't think it's just that money is in politics. I think politics is in money creation. And actually... <laughs> Politics is actually printing money now, which is a whole nother thing. Right. So, um, you know, I, I think when you, you start looking at like the old, oh, um, you know, um, the uh, what was the, the movement back in the, the financial crisis uh, about Wall Street? Um, you, you know, you had the Bernie Sanders kind of folks. You had the, the hard left or the left wing really say a lot of things that I'm sort of agreeing with in that the power structures, are, it's rigged against them. It's rigged against the other 99% is the way they structured it. The 1% was rigging it against 99%. It's just the solutions they're pursuing are not the right ones, in my opinion. They're, they're, they're more destructive. And so it's true that the system is rigged. It's true that we're, we're going further and further down that, that rabbit hole. And, and a lot of things that are coming out and we can get into CRT and all these other things that are coming out now, I think are just smoke screens really for the powerful to keep the focus over here while we continue to build an economy that is more and more controlled by elites. Um, and that's the, that in, in a sense is the China model. And that's the ones that they were that was the conversations that we were having is really what they're playing out. This is sort of the great reset. This is all those things of the powerful, the, the big and powerful get bigger and more powerful. They believe in that. And so I think our best remedy against that is to enable the, the small. So when I say capitalism, that's what I'm talking about. True capitalism. True. If you have a good idea and you and I want to do business, there should be very, very little that gets in the way of us doing business together. Mm, fair. Yes. Yes. That I, I completely agree with. Completely agree with. Um, and I, I think you're you're absolutely right. The um, the power in politics has always kind of been given to the elite. And I, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but it almost seems like that has been the uh, the structure of our political landscape ever since the founding of this country. I mean, to be able to vote, you had to be a, a male property owner. You know, so that kind of makes a distinction between everybody else, even if they're hardworking and they're you know, spending a lot of time and energy um, to to, you know, devote to the uh, the economy. You still had to own property and be a man to uh, a, a white man to vote at the founding of the country. So that almost seems like from the beginning, it's the powers lied within the elite and so the system essentially has always been rigged is would you say that's accurate well let me um let me
let me end that last conversation too. Like if you look at Enron, for example, mm-hmm. Enron was a terrible thing, but what came after Enron was Savon Oxley. And what that really did is destroy the IPO market. So the, the ability for a company like mine to succeed is, is really just to sell out. If I do something really novel, Google will just buy me or something. And, and I'll make a bunch of money and I, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll take that deal, obviously, but it really should be that I should grow and disrupt Google. So it's, it's not all just, I'm not all trying to make it out to be that there's some evil guy in the back pulling all the strings. A lot of these were well-intentioned, but they just create this system that, that doesn't allow for the disruptor to exist. Going on to the next question that you had, I, the, the, this is a context question. Of course that was wrong, um, but it was coming from a, a period of time where lords, which are landowners, it, it was evolving from the serfdom of the last couple centuries. It was, a, it was evolving from a king and lords. Lords were landowners and they were certain types of people. Um, the found the, 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 the novel thing that this country was built on and why that revolution was different than the French revolution was happening at the same time is all these ideas that the people should, you know, should be empowered and that we should, the governments shouldn't be, shouldn't exist for the people, but the people or the government should exist for the people, not the people for the government. Those were great ideas for the time. And the founders really struggled over certainly the race and slavery issue. In fact, almost every colony except one who was the holdout was ready to sign the original Declaration of Independence, original that was to, to, to really get rid of, of slavery, which would have been living up to the ideals of the Declaration of Independence that all men are created equal. Um, those were revolutionary kind of ideas that were corrupted by the fact that they had to beat, they had to beat a, win a war against the, the world power at the time. And there was pragmatic things. And there were, there were people defending the institution of slavery in the South. I think South Carolina was the one holdout did not, did not want to sign the, the constitution or the, the declaration of independence at the time. So there was a real struggle and a real debate going on, on that issue. The landholder and some of the ideas that came down from all the way back to Plato, Plato really argued that democracy was, was really flawed because you got you have to have a certain level of education or a certain, certain status that, he, that uh, otherwise it will descend into, into a populist movement and it will be, de- be uh, overrun by demagogues. So you did have all these ideas percolating around at that time of uh, the Renaissance these were great ideas. Um, so, so I guess it's, in my, in my view, it's we're letting great be the enemy of good, that in the context of what the alternative could have been, the, that was a milestone. And even with the slavery issue, which was the scar of, you know, the, the curse of the, of, of, was, was the horrible evil that continued, they thought that was going to be a 20 year. We'll, we'll solve that in 20 years when we get past this turbulent period. Of course, that didn't happen. Um, but it eventually did happen through a civil war and through a, a, a real struggle. So uh, th- this is where I think, yeah, it was it rigged from the beginning. It's always rigged. I think the economic model of the country was not as rigged as it is now. Um, I'm not sure where we're going with the other things. I hope we're going forward, not backward. 
Um, but um, the economics, we didn't have income tax until the early part of the last century. And that was because of World War One and really the rise of progressivism of, you know, Woodrow Wilson progressivism. So, no, I mean, I, I, it's always rigged. Mankind will always be rigged. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I, I think, though, are we going in the right or wrong direction? And I think lately it feels like we're going in the wrong direction. So that's to your original question that I think it's time to stand up for what those values, those ideals were, even though they weren't, obviously weren't perfect at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and yeah, going back to the original question, like living up to the ideals, I, I think we kind of discussed this last time is that I don't think people have a good gauge on separating their ideals from what's possible. Uh, they kind of get, they, they kind of blur the lines and they, they elevate certain people they put too much emphasis on these these individuals so um and i guess we we can move into crt critical race theory about um like is that something that should be taught in schools because i think that's kind of how we got into the idea of like whether or not there should be holidays because obviously i i'm i'm super happy that martin luther king has a holiday but at the same time it's like well we're celebrating christopher columbus it's like, I'd rather just there be no holidays. We get time off because people and students need to rest. Um, but, but again, I think we have a hard time in putting people on a pedestal and when they're, and, and then we just place too much value on them. And then that's where you get the kind of, I think the, the dogma rhetoric that comes out of placing people on pedestals. Um, and you just kind of maybe you take that out of the equation and then people can, focus on maybe the values a little bit more easily yeah i mean martin Luther king is a good example though where i think we started to go down the other night when we were talking uh martin luther king should be a holiday the principle the civil rights movement is you know uh i think one of the you know one of the things that we should celebrate almost the most mm-hmm. it, it really went back to the founding uh documents or the founding spirit mm-hmm. you know judge people by the color of, of, of the content of their character not the color of their skin it talked to a merit-based world which again was novel is, is still novel go to india it's it's not a merit-based world completely it's still enshrined in in what class you're in and what stat you know which which layer of the class and that comes down from the religion and everything else the culture everything else but um Martin Luther King was not a saint. I mean, Martin Luther King is pretty well known, was a womanizer, had some issues personally. And so do we, I mean, that, you know, some of that's locked away in a vault. We may come out and he'll be a big me too guy at some point. Um, is that, does that mean we don't celebrate Martin Luther King because he wasn't a saint or because, but his ideals, his speech certainly was. And so when kids are growing up, what's, Again, what is the outcome of, of celebrating Martin Luther King Day is that they'll listen to his speech. They'll see how he stood against tyranny at the time. It, it, it will talk about how he stood against tyranny, yet didn't fall into, um, into militarism. I mean, it, it, it was he chose a, you know, the, the greater of his angels, you know, at the time when it really mattered. So we don't celebrate Martin Luther King because of his marital infidelity, or we don't 
celebrate him as the best marriage ever. We celebrate him because of the greatness that he was in standing up on a bigger, on a really big, important topic that you want every kid learning about. So if we just make the, the day a uh, civil rights day or um, I think you'll miss that value, even though I definitely kind of agree with you on, I don't want to hold people up on a pedestal because they're always going to be knocked down. They're, nobody can stand on pedestal forever. Right. None right. of us. <laughs> so, but, but, but don't you, I mean, wouldn't you agree though that you want, you know, the kids of America or the kids anywhere to really anywhere because it's a universal principle mm -hmm. to learn about Martin Luther King and especially his public life. Right. And, and I definitely would. And, and, you know, to kind of clarify things, it was that like, well, because I do think Martin Luther King should be celebrated and studied, but I don't think that Christopher Columbus should be celebrated. I think he should be studied without a doubt. And so if I had to go with an all or none approach, because you're going to have people on both sides saying like, no, you got to keep Christopher Columbus because he represents such and such. But I don't know that he actually represented the values of America. He, he found, he, well, he, he didn't, he didn't find anything, you know, the Native Americans here, but. Oh, you mean Christopher Columbus. Christopher um, Columbus. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, yeah, he I mean, the values, you, you right? could, yeah, you could make an argument that there's a better way to celebrate Western civilization. You could, yeah. you, you could make an argument that there's somebody better. I'm sure there's always somebody better. Um, it was a landmark that the, the date that that was founded, um, I guess the problem is it's been enshrined in so many years that to pull that out and replace it with something else. Yeah, I'm not going to, I'm not going to die on that hill. <laughs> right. You know, right. I mean, it's not like going to bring down the Republic or anything. It's just why we're doing it. I know, you know, I, I for example, my, 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 one of my kids goes to school, middle school here a few years ago when they, brought a city council person that will go nameless for now um, in Austin to whose kid was in, in, in my daughter's class um, to talk about indigenous people's day and how terrible Christopher Columbus was and all the bad things. And some of that started to shadow on not just Christopher Columbus, but what our society did and Western civilization did and all this. And there are a time and place to do that, but nobody countered, it was no, there was nobody that showed up and said, well, let me give you a different perspective. It's only one perspective being taught to this class. And that perspective, you walk away from not a balanced approach. And, and you certainly don't have anybody defending Western civilization there because it didn't, it wasn't just about, well, Christopher Columbus treated some of the people on the ship bad. And I don't even really know all the things I, I think he was probably typical of any traveler at the time. Um, but it, it descended from there to really all the, all the evils of, of what became America. And that's not the time to do that. It, like that. So, so I don't know. I mean, I, I think what, you know, if, if you replace it with Christopher Columbus with, um, I mean, everybody I can name, you're probably going to say has some issues with. I mean, I'm not sure who who embodies the the spirit um, of of what became what I think is is the country that the world should should look up should should look at and, and emulate. 
Right. Uh, the world would be better off and is better off because America exists. Do, do I guess let me ask you that question. Do you think America is, do you think the world's better off that Christopher Columbus or America or, you know, actually exist? Would, would the world be better if the U.S. or America never existed? No, that I cannot say that. No, because there, there are a lot of, uh, there's a lot of evil things that happened or not so great things that happened even before America got discovered. I think all of the, um, the issues that we're having today, I cannot in an honest conscious, consciousness say that um, things are better or there's more violence than there was, you know, a thousand years ago, 500 years ago. It's just that, you know, now we're able to share more information a lot more quickly. And, and again, when you have um, the elite writing the history books, they're obviously going to leave out some of the dirt that they did. So sure. it's, it's um, so, but I, I am very proud to be American. I'm, I'm happy to live in America. I, I love having conversations with people who have lived in other places. Um, mm -hmm. I will say that, you know, we have a long ways to go. We're not perfect. You know, there's been a lot of chaos that has come with the creation of this country. But out of that chaos, you also get what the greatest amount of greatness that, that the planet has seen as well. You're getting all of these diverse thoughts and it's like, we're trying to correct it. Things do happen slowly, but um, I think it speaks volumes about how difficult it is for people to overcome biases, whatever that bias might be. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, as far as like history is concerned, I, I think we would do a lot better if we, you know, maybe taught a more comprehensive understanding of, uh, of individuals who were important to, to the history of America. And I wouldn't say that it means that um, it needs to be taught in a way and to say like this person was bad and this person was good, but really from just an objective standpoint, because I think you're absolutely right. I don't think the the um, the actions that Christopher Columbus um, engaged in were that much different than any other traveler at the time. Again, they were horrendous. I think, you know, there was definitely um, an elitist type of mindset, you know, a, a superiority type of thing about, you know, um, you know, go conquer and uh, just everybody else is, is beneath you and just not treating others as, as life or, or, or as, as, as an equal. But that needs to be taught to let, you know, maybe even incorporate that. And to that, to that point, I had a thought like maybe even American history shouldn't be taught until you're in high school. Maybe, maybe that is a, is a way to um, approach it. I, I don't know, but I am very happy with America. We have a long ways to go. I think we neglect a, a lot of people um, that just have not had the opportunity to create influence. And I really don't think America actually fixes anything. I think you were right about um, there's a lot of smoke and mirrors designed to distract us. Um, but America does not really fix anything until something breaks, yeah. unfortunately. And that's when you see some more significant changes happen. Um, but yeah, yeah. I, I just, you know, the point of history, the only thing that's really important to me on history, I mean, I think there's a lot of context and we can go off off subject a little bit but it you know i mean the spaniards who you know in, in a sense raped mexico i mean not a sense probably did um that came through there was only 
about 500 of them that took over that country. And the main reason was that most of the indigenous people stood up against the Aztecs and they were being terrorized by the, the powers that be. That, you know, they did horrible rituals. So they, you know, you've seen movies where they pull their hearts out and whatnot. And there's nobody without, you know, the, the history of the world is not, there's nobody that's standing as the same. Right. <laughs> Unless you're a Christian, then you might say Jesus. But I mean, you, you don't have angels out there. And there's sometimes reasons why they had to be very harsh on a, on a, I assume, on a ship that's crossed. You know, you can't have authority go wrong and all that. But um, I think those that context still needs to be delivered. But I think what's important for to, to teach, maybe even prior to, to high school, is the ideals. You know, why was it important that all men are created equal? Why was that novel? What does that really mean? Um, why is the individual, which is our really the what I would say is one of the paramount things the country was different on, why is that important that individuals have, have agency? Why is it, you know, the, I do think those things should, because... They're certainly getting indoctrination from other places and they're getting indoctrination on TikTok and everything else. There needs to be a counterbalance against the, the, the culture that seems to be teaching something different than what some of those timeless lessons were. Um, I, it, I think it's better to get into, well, Thomas Jefferson owned slaves. It's a complex issue. He was also very much in debt. He was both good guy and bad guy. But his ideals and what he wrote was genius. And at least that one document and even the document that wasn't published had a lot of things in it about his struggles with slavery and everything. It's, it's really interesting to, to see that we need to say greatness exists, I believe. You know, sort of like Santa Claus. You got to say, well, Santa Claus. And then you get a little older and I like, okay, Santa Claus is not real. I mean, the more complex issues I do think need to come later because children or, but they need to hear that there's, there's good here. Without that, they're going to be supplemented with things that, that, that aren't counterbalanced. Yeah, I, I hear you. But at the same time, I feel like good isn't something that needs to be necessarily taught at some, such a young age. I kind of feel like children are inherently good. Like good is, stitched and in, stitched into the fabric of who they are you know just like just running around the playground chasing each other playing games you know oh, yeah. do you have kids <laughs> I, I i don't I do not. <laughs> um some are some aren't <laughs> right of course that means you get the bully no, there as well come with an innocence generally they right. come with innocence um but i tell i you know i this is again going a little off subject but you know between the age of two and four you can kind of tell the ones that are going to be jerks and the ones that aren't going to be um right. yeah, they, they really do you do have to really set boundaries you got to give lessons there's there's good there's a lot of learning that goes on in those critical first years even though you certainly can't have a complex discussion with them so right. it does have to be dumbed down to um you know santa claus is this good this symbol of something good and you know, and, and I know some people argue, well, then you have to lie to them later. Oh, mommy, you lied to me about, I mean, come on. I mean, most, I, you know, I, I understand that argument, but uh, you know, it's, it's, it's innocence. I mean, let, I think we need to have an innocent time in our life and, and children need to be innocent 
longer than they are now. And so if we have to lie a little bit to keep innocence together, I don't know. I don't think it's a bad thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, but okay. So you're saying that children need to be taught the, the values of, um, of our country. But again, I think maybe the only values that I'm thinking of that an elementary school student should be taught would be like, you know, fairness, um, sharing, maybe patience. I mean, what else does a, per, a, a child at that age really need to be taught? Whether about what other values are important that they need? Cur- courage, standing up. Yeah. Bully on the playground, stand up for, for what's right. Universal principles. Um, I'm not, again, not in a complex way, but the basics, they really do. Um, you don't, you don't resort to violence because you're angry. You don't hit your sister or your brother or whatever, which they do. You got to teach that right away. Mm-hmm. They'll, they'll, they'll take advantage. To, they, they come, they come out with innocence, but they're, 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 there's an animalistic component to it that you got to control. You got to, you got to deal with. And so I think those principles are important. Um, so I, I just see a, va- I see a value. And one of the reasons superheroes and all those things emerged is they were originally the ideal. And re- there are reasons why humans, you know, gravitate toward these narratives and they need, humans need it somehow embodied in something they can understand, touch and feel. And sometimes that's a superhero. Sometimes that's a, a hero. Sometimes it's a hero on the, the sports, uh, on, you know, in sports. I mean, I know as a kid growing up, there were heroes I had in sports. And, you know, it, 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 there's hard work that's rewarded, you know, excellence that's taught. You know, um, I, I, you know, I think as they get a little bit older, you got to say, look, that hero worship needs to fade and you need to focus on those principles. I just think that's a hard thing to do to a five, six year old or whatever. They've got to have heroes. You know, I think you, you're absolutely right. I think they do need heroes, people to look up to. Um, but it's, I think it could, an argument could be made that the people that they're looking up to are probably like professional athletes and celebrities. I don't know anyone who, any child who's uh whose hero is, um, you know, a founder of the country or a president for the most part, maybe a few, maybe there might be a few out there, but they're definitely not. There's not a large majority of them or a significant number of them. So I, again, I don't know where the value is and maybe. Well, no, it's not as easy to say some, you know, some, some guy that wrote something is important. I mean, but as they go through school, I mean, it starts off with a very just symbol. Um, Santa Claus charity, you know, um, uh, a, a great ball player. I can see that excellence, but it, we, we, we as adults should try to, I think, get some other heroes in there that are more substance oriented than just playing a sport really well. Um, you know, so it, it's, it evolves. I think it starts off very basic, hard work pays off. Then it turns into, you know, loyalty, um, principles and and then it goes into the more complexities well just because these people said that they didn't always act that way your mommy and daddy weren't perfect um, you do need to introduce all that to them i just don't think you need to do it it needs to go in stages okay uh, i, I agree with that 
Yeah, I agree with that. And on that note about like teaching, teaching um, children kind of the correct values. So you are in an interracial marriage, you have biracial children. So how do you feel about critical race theory, like existing? In well, let's start with, structures? What, what do you define it for me? Well, I guess, I mean, you, you basically probably gave me a little more history of it last time we spoke, basically saying the theory was that um, systems are inherent, have inherently racist um, tenants ingrained in them. And you think that is false. Well, yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I, I know, I mean, I, I've known about critical race theory for about five years. Uh, I, I've known about postmodernism and uh, liberation th theology, which um, went back to when Obama was just coming on the scene and Reverend Wright goes back to black liberation theology, which came from also um, South America was liberation theology. Um, these are all, in my opinion, really bad things. And they kind of all come from the same. And I, I struggled with saying when I say they, whoever they are, it's always, I hate when people say that. It's like, who is there's this one person? And I, and I don't believe it is that, but they're really, really bad ideas. And, there, I, and ideas can turn into evil and, and, and then action and then people embody that, those ideas. And I, I, I really fear that we're going down a really bad path with some of these bad, bad ideas. Um, and, and those ideas are the main reason I don't like those ideas. And I can go into what critical race theory and postmodernism and it comes, goes way back to uh, postmodernism and the Frankfurt School and those different people that brought it forward and then there was uh, they've embodied it now into a, a racial component but there are all kinds of critical theories critical theory is not just critical race theory there's critical queer mm -hmm. um, theory and all kinds of different theories that fall into this critical category well if you want to um, yeah if you want to touch on the the specific ideas that you think are dangerous yeah please do yeah so so the first the first part is it treats everybody as a group it looks at everything. It's almost, it is not almost, it's a cult-like religion. And if you really dig into the literature and none of these things are, is it, I'm not exaggerating any of these ideas. If you go back to their ideas they are worse than what I'm saying, if I, if I quoted them or if you look them up, they're more extreme, let's put it that way, than what I'm saying. Um, and it starts with that you, you have no agency as an individual, which right there, you lose me on that. But, but that you, we, liberation theology, for example, says that you as a group or we as a group get to heaven or get to salvation and that people are really just part of a group and not part of a, an individual. And this is kind of where, you know, this is where Marxism went. And so it has, it has component, Marx, the only difference between some of these theories and Marx was Marx only looked at class where now I think they've realized that race is more incendiary and more emotional in the U.S., particularly in the U.S. And so it's, it's, it's got more ability to take root. And so the first part is the group versus the individual. Uh, and, and then it also goes to group that goes back through the generations. And you and I kind of got into that discussion about how different <laughs> epinology and things like that, which I, I do not, 
I do not, you know, we disagreed on. Um, but when, when you're not, when you no longer have your agency as an individual and that I basically carry the sins of my group, whatever that group is. And you, by the way, grouping is a skillful art. You can group anybody in a hundred thousand different ways. You can look at me as male. You can look at me as white. You can look at me as straight. You can look at me as such, such, such a, you know, certain income level. You can, you know, I'm, a, I'm in the data business. You can, you can fragment data in all kinds of ways to tell your story. And so the, the idea of grouping and not having responsibility to what I do, but what my group does has the most, uh, it, it, is, it goes down a path that, that turns into, well, in its worst cases, the things that happened in the last century. That's what happened at the beginning of the century with both fascism and communism and what goes on in North Korea today. Um, so I, I think the fact that this is emerging today is really strange. Um, it definitely allows people to get power. I think some of the authors that are really pushing it with like white fragility and some of these best-selling books, they're, they're, I think they're white people by the way, but they're, it, 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 for them, I believe it's a power grab. It's a way for them to sort of be a, a hustler and, 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 and get prominence and be invited to give speeches and make a lot of money. But, I, but it, it, there's, the, the idea itself leads us down a path of tribalism. It leads us down to a path where you're going to have tribes fight. You're going to have, you, you're not judging people based on the content of their character, but by the color of their skin. It's the most antithesis to Martin Luther King that you can come up with. And it's couched in this idea that it's just understanding, you know, uh, um, it, it's couched, in, it's, it's a fraud the way it's couched and the way it's presented. Now it's starting to be exposed now. Like for example, in the last election, one of the debates then Chris Wallace asked Trump what was wrong with having, you know, sort of uh, just understanding and, and uh, having, you know, sessions where you understand the other side, having empathy for a person of a different color or a different status. That is not what critical race theory is. And it's, it was amazing that the elites, that they should have known better. And then, you know, Trump being Trump sort of stumbled over it. Well, it's, it's discrimination. That actually doesn't explain it very well. And it doesn't explain the incendiary nature of it. So when we start going off on it, I, I, I think it, it, it's, it's, it's a wolf in sheep's clothing. It's not what you think it is. If, if we're talking about trying to figure out how to empower disadvantaged groups, I would love to have that discussion. But I don't think the discussion can descend into groupthink and tribalism and, well, this tribe you know, this tribe beat up on this tribe years ago. So now let's have this tribe beat up on this tribe. And people are guilty by things that they can't control. I think that's a really, really bad path. Yeah, I mean, I definitely would love to touch on the topic of like, how do you empower disadvantaged groups? I'd left, I would definitely want to touch on that. Um, but at the same time, it's like grouping is, you're saying grouping is dangerous. And it's like, but grouping is what we've been doing in America. I don't necessarily, we don't even need to go back as far as oh, yeah. know, before. It it's like, it's, it's, it's what we have always done. Like political parties are, are, are grouping. It's like, it's the easiest way 
for people to think about other people, period, because it takes a lot of energy and effort to um, try and think of the individuals that exist in a group. Yeah, but so what, I guess, what's the point that you're making there? The fact that it was done in the past and it was universally now, there was wars, you know, civil war fought over it. And then it turned into a Jim Crow laws. And if you had, you know, a certain percentage of black in you, you were classified in this group versus that group. Even within the black community, there was a brown bag test. So a lot of things I learned once I've married my wife, by the way. <laughs> I bet you, um, you know, there was all these different, all of that's bad. And yeah. we put law and, and really since the 60s, these all became illegal. You weren't you're not, if, if, if it's, you, you're not allowed to, or it's illegal to discriminate based on immutable characteristics, you know, the color of your skin. Um, and it's, it's, it's regressive. It's going back to a time that's predating the civil rights era. It's just, cha- it's just changing the group. And it, it, so I, I, it, it, it shouldn't even be controversial. Um, I think a lot of it is, I'm not, I'd really like to talk to somebody that really believes in it. Cause I don't understand where they're coming from. And I'm trying to wrap my head around. I think a lot of people that talk about it are talking about, um, mostly don't understand it or talking about something different. They're talking about, um, you know, dealing with, um, white, you know, white people don't know what black people are doing and they, it'd be good if they had an appreciation, if they understood some of their stupid statements and, some of their inherent racism that might be built into what they're saying. All of that is definitely good discussion. And, you know, I mean, people say stupid things all the time. And if you get into a, an environment where, you know, my, my wife was grew up in, you know, a white school or whatever, and there were kids that wouldn't date her because she was a different color and all those are good, it's good discussions to have. Um, but again, the solution is not the right answer to that problem. I would love to have a discussion without getting into Marxism as, and if you read some of the literature, it's clearly coming from that class, that, that Marxist kind of viewpoint and um, takes it to another level with, with postmodernism. Postmodernism basically also says, it's another tenet that I can't, I, I can't deal with is nothing is objective, everything is subjective. And you hear that come through all of our culture now. It's my truth or your truth. And, and there's, you know, there's one truth. There are different perspectives and people can come to different conclusions on the truth. We're all pursuing the truth. Nobody really found the truth. That's not, I'm not saying I got the truth over here in a bottle, but it's the pursuit of one truth that we we're all looking at the same. We're trying to pursue a truth. There isn't a relative the relative uh, nature of, of postmodernism that came out after the war, world wars was that, you know, there's just no absolute right or wrong. Everything's relative. That leads us down a really bad path. Well, I, I think everything is, is relative to a degree because even when you're talking about, you know, people saying that like, or attempting to be objective versus subjective, I think people really struggle with that because people are emotional first. So even to get to a place where they can realize that like, oh, I'm not thinking objectively, that is a huge leap and bound. 
And if I had to guess the proponents of critical race theory, because I'm not exactly sure what the right answer is, it's still kind of a new subject to me. But if I had to guess the, um, the supporters of critical race theory, what they're trying to do is get the groups that are in power to recognize, just simply recognize first and foremost, the disparities that exist. Would you agree that that's accurate or no? Uh, which part, the, the, that's their intent? Correct. Who's ever pushing it? Correct. No, I don't agree. Okay, what do you think they're... they're I mean, I think it's a power grab. It's easier to put people and divide people and then you've got power. I think from a political standpoint, it's easier to, to particularly black people, keep them in the Democratic Party at a 90% clip or 85%. It's going down now, but it, you know, at, it, the one party, a one party group, it's easier to keep that, you know, the, the boogeyman out there being this white racist that's embodied as the Republican Party. And I'm not a party guy, but I'm just saying they, it's definitely a way to split the, the races or the parties. Um, you could argue that the Republicans did that in like 1984, well, when, when, or was it uh, 94, 04, when uh, Karl Rove kind of used the gay marriage issue as a wedge issue to push the needle toward George Bush winning the second term. And I think that was probably correct to some extent. He realized a bunch of people were, were on that one subject, we're going to fall into this tribe. And now gay marriage has changed radically. But at that time in 04, Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, everybody was against gay marriage, supposedly. And then they, they flipped, you know, a decade later, and it became a different politic, because um, politicians do that. Um, but those were wedge issues. This is a wedge issue of the day. This is the easiest wedge issue because it does have such emotional appeal. It's easy to sway emotions. It's easy to lead people off a cliff or lead people into war or lead people to, you know, the atrocities that we lead people to if you get their emotions on your side. It's really hard to make an argument. It's hard to talk about data. It's hard to talk about like logic and get people to follow you. I mean, it, it's better. Hopefully it stays in longer, but it's easy to be a demagogue and get and be a great order and, and then focus in on an emotion and then take them to where you want to take them. And so critical race theory is brilliant at that. And it changes language. It plays with language. So it's, it's insidious, I believe, by design. So are the people that are pushing it all that insidious? I don't know. But I don't think most of them that really know it are pushing it for the right. If they really knew it, I think they would reframe it. And if they knew its history, where it's coming from, the disciples of critical theories in general don't think they would push it other, uh, other than a hardened communist. Um, and, and I don't say communist lightly. I mean, that's mm -hmm. exactly what, what it, where it came from. I think Marxism and communism failed in its attempt to indoctrinate into the U.S. over economics, just lost that argument. It's easier to win the cultural argument and kind of, key in on something that is a, um, you know, the, the Achilles heel of America, the, the great sin of America, which is race and, and all that. So that's where, that's what I think is behind critical race theory. And that's why it, it, it needs to be exposed in my opinion. Um, I think the conversation about understanding where others come from, I, I, I thought, I think we were winning that argument. I, I think we were, win, you know, we were moving in the right direction. And I fear that this, 
I, I don't say this just because I have biracial kids. I mean, I say this as a human being, but I do have biracial kids. I don't want to have them divided as to which are they going to go on mother's side or father's side. I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's not the, that's not a healthy, now they're not going to, I don't have that struggle in my family, but um, that's sort of the outcome that seems to be where we're going. Um, so that's why I'm, I'm so against it. And I think it's, it's one of the big things that we've got to start exposing and talking about. Um, I think what was winning, you know, when I, when I married my wife and what was, I should know this in 98, um, <laughs> When we met in 94, I called my, you know, I came from a kind of, I don't know, I shouldn't say this because this is recorded, but I, and I came from, you know, not, not an upper class white, white family in Cincinnati, which is very segregated. But, you know, when I called my dad and I said, I'm bringing a, a, a new girl around and she's black, you know, he went crazy. He's like, oh, I can't believe you're doing this to me. And, and, and I, uh, if you know my personality, I'm kind of a contrarian. I didn't care, you know. <laughs> I told Stephanie to wear African garb and go over with that with us, but um, <laughs> you know, just to kind of poke the needle. But you know, <laughs> after they met, and then a few as time went on, and very quickly, my dad ended up really coming to like Stephanie, and it was sort of breaking a long held. And my dad didn't like a lot of people; he had a lot of problems. He's been long gone, so it's. Um, but he's had a lot of problems with all kinds of people. They didn't go to the wedding of several of my sisters because one was Protestant and the other was some other issue. So, but it, it kind of, it was good that that evolution was happening. And then, you know, if you would have looked at when we got married in 98 and took a survey, I think the surveys at the time were almost evenly split as to those that believed in interracial marriage. It was, it was I think it was almost against and uh, recently, as recent as a year or so ago, it was, I think it was 87% of people accept, were very much in favor of interracial marriage. And really the only 10% left are probably some people that are just old, you know, old, old people. However, some of that percent now is coming from this idea of that race means that much. Like we're, we're committing genocide by us, by interracial people getting together and creating kids that are, look sort of white, look sort of black. That there's some, some sort of racial identity that we're attacking now by even us reproducing. Um, colonization is going on because I'm, um, hopefully, uh, <laughs> I don't know what kind of rating this has, but you know, hope, you know I'm, I'm, I'm colonizing my wife every time we have sex. I mean, come on. <laughs> right. um, so, I mean, these ideas are percolating again, and they sound to me like what the Ku Klux Klan would have said in the 60s or whenever. They sound like the same people that would say these white supremacists, wherever they are, these, these nasty people, would, would, are the same things coming out of um, some educated communities right now that are preaching critical race theory and that we need to go back into our tribes and we need to go back into this idea of race means something. It means nothing. It literally means nothing. And it should be that going forward. Now, does that mean that we don't want to talk about history? We don't want to talk about the fact that, you know, my um, nephew, I, I have a nephew on my wife's side that was actually the child that saw um, Trevin Martin get, get killed in uh, Stanford, Florida. 
it was the 13 year old boy that was walking the street or walking the dog. And, um, so he had a lot of trauma in his life over race and different things. And, you know, we were, went down a few years ago in Florida and he's, he, he kind of looks like a rapper. He's got some hair at the time. He kind of had long hair and just anyway. Yeah. He had some guy come out and he's parking his BMW and was yelling at him because he thought he was a gangbanger and he was with us, you know? And so does that happen? And the guy that was done, it was, wasn't a white guy, but it was, I think, a, you know, somebody from an, Cuba or whatever, but it, you know, does that happen? And then does that happen to him where it didn't happen to me? Absolutely. Um, there's a long conversation that we ought to have about that. And there are ways to talk about that in, in a way that's not putting us in groups and saying, well, the only way to solve that is to get back at this other group because they, this group was bad at one point. Let's get back. I mean, this is the Hatfield McCoy's. This is eye for an eye that, that, that leaves everyone I think somebody said that leaves everybody blind. I mean, all that's going to do that, that, that is not a good solution for going forward. And so I don't know what the temperature for interracial marriage is now, but we don't have, you know, it's in my lifetime, it went from, I mean, really when I was born, I wasn't legally able to get married to Stephanie in Florida. I mean, that's how old I am. Um, and in that, in just my short lifetime, we went from being sort of, you know, an, an oddity or just an aberration to almost being like every commercial I see has an interracial marriage, has an interracial couple in it now. Mm -hmm. So that's a really good thing. Let's keep going. Let's not regress. I completely agree. Like a long we, answer to your critical race theory. Then. No, no, but I mean, there was so much information in there. Um, there, there were a few things that I, I want to touch on. Because I mean, I mean, I, I agree. We all need to get to a point where we realize there is only one race, and that's the human race. But in the example of I, I um, your, uh, your, your, my nep uh, your my nephew, nephew, yeah, yeah. In the example of your nephew, like, how do you tell someone that, like him, that race doesn't matter when his experience is that much different? To say, like, for to have that happen to him, some stranger yelling at him simply because of the way he looks. And then to, you know, look and say like, well, race doesn't matter because for so long groups have been told that race does matter. So how do you even get to a right. point where you can, you know, say objectively that, that race doesn't matter without realizing the lived experience of, of someone else? Yeah. So does race matter in practical life? Yeah. In some circumstances, particularly if, you know, he, when he went and got a job, he cleaned, so he, he cut his hair, he, he you know, he, like, you know, just like a, a white guy that would have tats and be, you, you got to clean yourself up to go get a job. You, we all need to do that to some level. So some of it was the fact that he was kind of, you know, that just kind of his choice of the way he chose to, that he chose to look. Now he can't choose to have a different co skin color and I wouldn't suggest that he should. Um, and he will be in circumstances where somebody will judge him based on that. And when I married my wife, we had circumstances where people would say things and in different environments. Again, I, I think most of it is about power. Frankly, I could care less if some bigot in, in the corner is looking at me in a certain way. In fact, if they're looking at me, they're kind of like, wow, you were able to get that. You know, you were able to get that girl. 
that's at least in my head. That's where right. I'll take it. I mean, I don't care. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> right. And, you know, and he's better. She's better looking than what you're with. If it's a big, you know, uh, it, I'm just, you know. Um, but you know, my point is, is some of it is you aren't going to change the world. You you can't. You never. We're never going to have a perfect world. But it's more about what power. What, what the power position is. If, if I don't care when, when I went to China or whatever, I'm the only American non-Chinese guy. And there were guys that would look at you a different way. And there was some, especially in, in China, the, the male, uh, there's a, there's a macho thing and about the Western male that they kind of aggressively sort of feel like they kind of want to come over and challenge you to something. Um, but if I walked in and, and you carry that with you, um, as long as I'm not in a not powerful, less powerful position. Now, some of the circumstances where somebody who is a certain race is in a less powerful position, say going in for a job interview, and um, those are challenges we got to deal with. Um, but I don't think the solution is to tell or to for me to tell my nephew. You're never. You're always going to be having people look down on you, or you're always going to be disadvantaged because of your race. I don't think it's the right solution. I think the right solution is stand up and find the people that you want to. You know, in the bigot in the corner, ignore them or don't deal with them. If you're in a place where you think, you know, you're going to be threatened physically, then you got to be aware of that. Um, same way, I have to be aware of being threatened physically in a, in, in certain communities that are all black. Um, but generally, you know, I, I, I don't know if I'm answering your question, but I don't think you can eliminate all those problems of what that race does matter. What I'm saying when I say it doesn't matter is in reality, I mean, it should not matter and it does, shouldn't matter in your head. And by saying it matters everywhere or preach the solution that we're presenting that you need to be cognizant of your race. You need to be cognizant. There are circumstances where you do, but those are rare that we're putting it in our head. And if it gets in your head, it's worse than external. I can take care of the external more than I can take care of what's in my head. If I go into a situation and I feel like the odds are against me or I feel inferior, which is also a problem that I can't do this or I can't overcome these odds or I can't, that everybody will always push me down. You're not doing a favor to that child, to that kid. And I think that's what we're doing a little bit. Um, anyway, I don't, again, long answers. I'm sorry. I'm kind of no, all good. No, no, I, 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 mean, I, I it, you know, I, we, we, we cannot instill disadvantage in our head. Right. And, and, and I think you're, and that's such a deep, a deep subject, like instilling disadvantage in your head, because disadvantage is also woven into the fabric of capitalism. It's about winning. So it's like, we understand from a very young age about, you know, winning and losing, which is if you're a loser, you're, you're at a disadvantage, you know, after a certain point, not everybody gets a participation trophy anymore. At a certain point, you know when you suck and you have to, as a kid, you know, like maybe this sport isn't for me or I need to move on, you know, yes. so you just stop trying. So it's like disadvantage is, is, is something that we are very much aware of even before 
we're taught about the complex structures that exist in America. But you're, I, I think you're right that you have to like decondition yourself and really understand that like you aren't at a disadvantage and at least try to see yourself on the same playing field as another one. And maybe that person has other strengths than you do. But I think that's, you know, you have to also realize your strengths and where, you know, everyone has weaknesses and nobody's impervious to, to, to having weaknesses. Um, but it almost sounds like, because I think critical race theory from, from what I gathered, it almost seems like it's just a, um, it's a, you know, it's a political term, it's a catchphrase, but I think it's mostly to get people to pay attention. It almost sounds like it's the exact same thing as you trying to get your father to kind of, to give value to who your wife was. You, you want to poke the bear a little bit. So you have to give some talking points. You want to be a bit of a contrarian which is, and that's kind of what the advocates of critical race theory seem to be to me. They seem to be doing exactly what you're doing and they're being a contrarian to the status quo just to get people to pay attention and try to think different. Yeah, I would disagree on that one. Okay. okay and, uh, so for example, some tenets of critical race theory, if you go to the African-American Museum and the Smithsonian, I believe it is in, in Washington, they there's a and I haven't been there, but there's a uh, they talk about this and two plus two equals five and that, that being on time is a white a manifest manifestation of white uh, white society of white uh, of, of white supremacy ingrained in our culture. It goes to the heart of rationality. It goes to the heart of rena of the Renaissance. It goes to the heart of logic. That everything we see, whether you're conscious or unconscious of what's going on it's the reason why things are the way they are is because white supremacy and racism is everywhere and this sounds ridiculous but read the literature on it read what they actually say and, and and look at some of the manifestations of it in like a museum that's sitting in washington there are, are we to say that whiteness is about being on time or being hardworking? And that blackness is not what is that teaching who does that how does it manifest itself in that way anybody that would say well i'm just using critical race theory to talk about the racial issue i would i would challenge them to say well how does it end up there how does it end up that when i say beyond time i'm being a white racist because that doesn't end well for my nephew if he hears that message and he embraces that message that I am the way I am because I'm it's built into me or uh, it's, 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 I can't imagine the, the grand wizard of the Ku Klux Klan devising a better scheme than that to hold black people down and to, 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 or anybody or a society, which I think is maybe part of the thing going on here to tear a society apart when it manifests itself in those kinds of outcomes. Um, so I don't think critical race theory is just about racial awareness and, hey, wake up, uh, black people have a different experience. And not all black people do, black people are people. There's some that grew up in impoverished areas and there's some that are, you know, billionaires. And there's some that, you know, I mean, they're people, everybody, they're individuals. So yes, there is, there is a conversation and to use a term that I don't think ever means what it means. Um, that we need to have about like, you know, just be tolerant and, and judge people by their character. 
get to know them first before you just make a rash decision or rash judgment. Uh, those are all good things. We should have that conversation, but that is not what critical race theory is. Right. Right. Um, and you know, you know what it's um, cause I, I think you're right. I think there are people that overcorrect and to teach uh, a group of people that, you know, being punctual is, is um, a negative thing or it's something that you've been conditioned to do because it's what fits the narrative of another group of people. I think that's completely wrong. I think it's an overcorrection. And I, I don't know if that represents the entire theory of, uh, or if that would be validated by the, the originators or the writers of the rule. But yeah, it would be because it's, it's rooted in critical theory, which comes before critical race theory, critical theories, the critical part of theories, and there's a lot of literature on this. The, the critical part of the theories is that it's everywhere and it's in, it's everything that you subconsciously can't see. And therefore the whole system, the baby needs to be thrown out with the bathwater that we can't, you can't dissect and say, well, this is wrong that, you know, treating people, you know, having that this incident is wrong, but this is right. That, that the whole thing needs to be thrown out. That's what critic, the critical part is all about. And, that, that I find insidious and seems to have a more insidious agenda behind it. I don't think that most people that embrace it even know that or care that, that you know, I don't think, I think most of the people that are embracing it are emotionally attaching to, well, finally, we're talking about race. Finally, we're starting to get into a conversation where, where you know, Black Lives Matter, to use the term. And I'm using it not for the group, but the actual meaning um, that I, I understand that emotional impulse. But once you read about what really it is and then see how it manifests itself into, like I said, the Smithsonian or what where, where it takes groups of people in NASA and, and throughout and, and you know people that are engineers at NASA or in the military and then takes them into separates them by race and talks to white people differently than it talks to black people and, and, and that there is a subconscious bias in the most ridiculous things you do. Um, it, it's manifesting itself into real things. And that's where I think it's dangerous. I, I remember having this conversation like five years ago because a lot of the, the literature came out with, within um, colleges. You know, like these are just crazy college kids. There's always a co crazy college professor. Nobody's going to embrace these theories because these theories have been around for a while. The critical theory has been around since, you know, even the modern versions of them. But in the last few years, corporate boards are bringing them up. The language has entered corporations so quickly. And um, I'm not exactly sure why I have theories on that, but I, I don't really know what what that's about, but it's, it's infesting our society and our thinking quicker than I, I, I would have thought. So I, I hear what you're saying. And I do understand it. And I can understand why it would seem that way. But if you really look under the covers and look under the hood of, of, of this, it has a more insidious nature to it that it's not what you think. I, I hear you, but I really think that um what we're finally hearing now is it's, you know, the people that have, uh, it's just such a complex issue that you can't ignore. I, I don't think you can just say like ignore it and like try and find value in uh, and try and understand that you're not at a disadvantage because I think it's, uh, 
it's if you like look at it by class, perhaps, you know, if you grew up in a certain neighborhood, you're probably experienced a different level of racism than somebody uh, who rose up in an affluent neighborhood. It's just gonna be a little different and you can't ignore those disparities. And I think a good example of that might be the fact that let's say if you have a, a, a speaker, a presentation speaker who is 6'5", and you know, um, you know, a white American male, and he's 6'5", he's gonna get more credibility than the speaker who is 5'9", and a white American male. It's yeah. like it's like really just trying to understand the psychology of how we operate, and we're doing it in these really ex abstract ways, you know. And when I say ex extreme ways, you know, critical race theory would be an extreme way, and I would also say having the narrative of pull yourself up by your bootstraps and pretend like nothing's wrong is also an extreme way. It's 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 attempting to avoid these intricacies and and treat people as even individuals as these, as these monoliths, and we're not. It's like we're more complex than that. You know, just because we literally just seeing someone who's taller is more credible than someone who is shorter is, is, a, is a bias issue that's just ingrained like in our DNA. So it's like bringing attention to that that is, I think, the important thing. And, and maybe I don't think either school of thought is going in the right direction about it, but I do think it's a conversation that needs to happen. And it's probably just a necessary next step because it is such a complex conversation. I think for the most part though, I would not conflate. I, I mean, you're putting critical race theory into this conversation about bias that is inherent in human beings. And I don't think it belongs there. I really don't. I think it has, um, it's not about, it, 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 there's, there's a grain of truth, I guess, in it. And, and there, are, there are certain little elements that seem to manifest itself into, this is just an extreme example of looking at just the racial component and taking it to the extreme. It's, it, 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 is, it, it, is, it is not, in my opinion. There's a grain of truth in that race does play a role in in way people judge and and it's sort of in, innate i mean it's innate that you kind of gravitate towards somebody that looks like you 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 it's innate that like you say that you, there's all kinds of things that are innate, such as the, the height of somebody the attractiveness i mean are you telling me you don't talk to a pretty girl differently than you talk to i mean some of that is controllable i mean but most of it's not you know i mean I didn't uh, say that. I, I try and talk to everybody the same. <laughs> oh, come on. They're all pretty. <laughs> I look for the inner beauty. <laughs> so, so, but, but the point is, is okay, the, that's the world that we're in. We didn't create the world. That's the world that imp, of imperfect human beings trying to, in, trying to interact with each other. And that there should be some attempt to, to expose that, um, you know, and, and I think for the most part, we were doing a great job on the race issue that, you know, beauty is now, uh, when I married my, my wife, I thought she was beautiful, which she was, she was flat out beautiful. And, and yet that wasn't the embodiment of beauty early on. And then it became it pretty much it, it, it's now, you know, so cultures do change and can change. And I thought they were changing to a, a great degree. Um, but it's really what you do with, all, with the, the world that we're in. It's kind of, again, what is the solution? And the solution is not to embed that into your, so if we're, if, we, if I was a coach of a football team and you were a coach of the other football team and we were playing game and you, you guys were bigger, faster, you guys had all, you know, you were 
projected to beat us by 30 points. With the speech that I give to my team before we go out to the that you have no way of winning, you're too slow, these guys are going to run over you. No, I, I would try to figure out a way to win. And I would instill that the game is not about who wins. It's really not about who wins or loses in that in, in the actual sport. It is really your character and how you rise to the occasion and, and use what you've got to overcome those, those challenges. And I don't think we're doing any favors by um, overemphasizing or um, – I mean, we're getting into a different subject than critical race theory. Critical race theory doesn't even talk about that. This is more about, yes, you got to have an appreciation for, I might be disadvantaged based on the fact that I'm too short or something, but I'm going to overcome that. You know, Steve Jobs had a bad father and he was an orphan, but he overcome, he overcame it. Um, You know, uh, Michael Jordan, I think, didn't get a, it was it was cut from his sophomore year in high school. I'm not sure if that's true, but it makes my story better. So, um, but you know, I mean, it turned out to be Michael Jordan. I mean, he worked hard and got through it. So what are the solution of how you deal with that is what we need to instill. Nigerian Americans make more than white Americans in the U S and they're, you know, they're black. Um, we, we do have people come to the country and do well, even though, they probably have hurdles. I'm sure they have had hurdles, but you know, I, I guess that's where I differ. I, I think of all the things really holding American, and this is where we get to solutions. All the hurdles that are holding um, a black kid that's coming from a, maybe a, a tough area down, races way, way, way down the list in terms of what is really the, the determinant factor of whether that kid will get economic success, uh, you know, success in life in many ways that you want to define it. And by even saying that, it's sort of like, well, you're a white guy, well, you would say that, or you would, that's not true. I mean, it, it, I should be able to say it and not be judged. I should, you should be able to look at the data and talk about that. And I think that's the way we overcome it is we do start to, kind of rise above our, you know, rep, uh, you know, uh, reptile brains where we just go off the first instinct. We have a discussion like we're having. We kind of try to appeal to logic and we try to, we try to reason and talk things out. And by doing that, you do get to a higher plane of how you actually exist, I, I believe. And then you get to a better place. And, and I don't know if we're going to get to free speech, but that to me is where this whole thing starts to also unravel is free speech and all this needs to be part of that to get to that higher level. That, that's our solution. Just talk it out, get to the higher level other than just, you know, hey, she's really a pretty girl. Well, have you talked to her? Right. <laughs> she, she becomes a lot less prettier when you talk to her and then you start to realize, you know. But on, you know, when I'm doing Tinder, or I'm not doing Tinder, but if I was doing Tinder, you <laughs> hey, know? your wife might see this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> this, honey, I'm, this is just a joke. Uh, this is just an example. But, you know, I mean, I'm just looking at the visceral thing. And we should teach everybody to look beyond the Tinder. We should teach. So that's our solution, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. Like, we have to have conversations about this. I think this is this dialogue, this back and forth, the willingness to uh, listen and hear the other side is just critical. And, but again, I, I kind of think it speaks to the structure of our, 
our society in that we really just have, we just yell at each other until things break. It just seems like that has been the history of our nation is we just yell until something breaks and then we, we fix it a little bit. Well, the history of the nation, I think was the best out there, you know, a bad solution, but the best, uh, better than every other example in that we did debate and we did talk. Yes. Um, to the level you could at different times in, in history. And I, I do see that under assault as well. The free speech and this idea that there's speech that you can say and speech that you can't. Um, it, it's coming together with critical race theory. It's coming because critical race theory is a Marxist, comes from a Marxist background. It, they're trying to put people in buckets and then Giving, give them an orthodoxy and anything outside that orthodoxy, you're canceled. I mean, cancel culture, all of this is coming from a place that I think is, you, you, we talked at the beginning of the, the podcast about why I think Western civilization and really the foundation of the country is at risk, ne like never before. Free speech has never been at risk. Censorship is, is like now commonplace. Um, and it, it's coupling with this idea that think in terms of your group identity. It's all kind of intertwined. And I think the solution to, is free speech. The solution is dialogue, real dialogue, not platitudes and slogans and, you know, crazy little boxes on corporate buildings that say, hey, yeah, we're one of the good guys. I mean, we are... We're, we have identity politics and the fact of what, whether you wear a mask or not. I mean, that, that identifies you as a certain group. It's crazy. But that's all part of free speech though, yes? Uh, well, no, I think it's a, I mean, the fact that somebody can wear a mask or not wear a mask. Well, you know, oh. or if a, a corporation's posting a sign saying this is where the good guys, you know, that's all part of free speech. Oh, I'm not saying that they should be illegal. Yeah. What I'm saying is it, com it comes from a spirit of, just putting a mask, just putting, you know, a symbol up so that you really won't look underneath and really investigate and really have a conversation. I don't think a slogan, a bumper sticker, I don't think, a, a you know, a, a black box on my social media, any of that has, I think it, it, it is the antithesis of actually talking through things. I'm not saying that it's all bad and, you know, you should have symbols sort of like what we were talking about before, if we all unite around a symbol, but most of it, I think is just posturing. It's all theater. It's just, it's not, it's because they don't really want to have a conversation. If you really want to say that um, they really don't want to dig into things. And um, that is the remedy I think for all of this. And so when, when real conversations start happening, you know, you, the big tech starts censoring and I never would have believed. And you could say, well, there are, you know, we can get into that conversation of whether they're, a, you know, free, the free market, it's just that play with censorship, but it's certainly against the spirit of what the country was based on. Western civilization was based on is, is vigorous debate, but then have a beer afterwards. I think the beer afterwards has gone away. We don't even really have a debate. We, we go into our little echo chambers and say how the other side sucks. And then you come out and, you, and it's, it's, it's yelling and, and not a debate, really. I mean, I, I would like to have a lot more debate and more, more of a, okay, let's have a cocktail afterwards because 
we're coming from a good place. We're trying to vet this out. We're trying to figure out what is the right balance between, you know, dealing with racial issues and really making sure that we have kids succeeding and being ex excellence in what they're doing in life and all these things. It would be great to have real conversations about that, but I think we're going the opposite direction. I don't necessarily agree with that. You know, I, I think, you know, with the rise of social media, what it's doing, it's giving just social media before you even get into race, it's giving people a voice who are typically pretty quiet in the real world. It's making, it's allowing them just to get their idea out there because they're probably not going to say it in any setting, race related or not, even if it's just on their favorite movie or an opinion about who won the world championships. It's like, because they just might be introverted or conservative or depressed or whatever, they won't do it in a public setting. So I, I think it's a little more sincere than just posturing. It's, um, I think there's so many thoughts and ideas and feelings and emotions out there that, um, you know, it's, it's an attempt at doing that. It's, it's saying, this is where I stand. And, you know, most of these people engaging in these Twitter wars or Facebook fights or whatever it is, they'll never do it in public. But it's a way for them to, I guess, express at least a portion of themselves that feels unheard or suppressed. And it's more than anything, it's starting a, it's attempting, it, it's, it's, I think behind it is a desire for real connection. It's a desire for dialogue. It's not, it's not as, uh, it, it's not as, as planned as posturing. It, I don't, I don't think it's gotten there yet. I think it's more in it. I mean, I, I think, I mean, I would say that was the ideal starting out. Mm -hmm. And I think it was the, I had some great advantages of being able to have a communicate. I mean, we're in the same city, but we could be in a different city and having this dialogue, which is great. Um, although we're not really on social media as much as we're actually having a direct dialogue, interactive dialogue where I can see your expressions and we're reacting to each other. We're not, social media doesn't have accountability a lot of times. I don't have to actually sit in front of you. I don't have to worry about, you know, I don't have to be polite. I don't have to, I can be anonymous to some degree. I don't actually have to look, look you in the eye. Right. And uh, so I think the downsides and where it's devolved to, I think the original intent was good and the original promise was good. It's devolved into an echo chamber of just finding people either that agree with me or finding people that don't and canceling them. And, uh, and by doing so, I can be a bomb thrower and I can critique without any consequence. If I, you know, if I, if I go up to somebody in person, I at least have to have empathy for the person. On social media, I need no empathy. I can destroy them without, without thinking, without having to deal with the reaction of the person. Um, I mean, you see suicide rates among young girls going skyrocketing. I mean, if you, Jonathan Haidt, Haidt um, wrote a book, you know, Coddling of the American Mind, and he's cataloged all this. If you can see it right when social media was kicking in. And a lot of that is because girls got their identity and, and more so than boys, both of them went up, but girls by exponential rates. And then in 2020, it looks like it's doubled. That's, that's a crisis. And they get their identity by their reputation, the way 
typically females destroy each other more so where guys will fight it out more so more often than not females will destroy each other's reputation and it, and their reputation means a lot more and that can be destructive to an adolescent and it is i mean the data shows that the, the scoreboard is bad on that um so yeah i think the promise of social media and certainly like what we're having here is great and i wish it were uncensored more than it is. And, and there seems to be a controlling element to it all of a sudden, which I didn't see coming. I thought that was the promise of all this is with there'll be unfeathered conversation. But now it's conversation that's acceptable and conversation that's, that's not. And I realize you can have bad actors that enter that, but I think we were talking when we, when uh, we were at the bar the other day or the last week was, you know, the example that the liberals that came from the liberal side of the, of, of the you know, of, of the political spectrum was the example of freedom of speech where in Skokie, Illinois in 1977, the, the Nazis, neo-Nazis marched through and Dershowitz and the leading liberals of the day in the ACLU was sort of their landmark case as to, yes, free speech is that sacred that we need to have every voice heard so we can stamp out or we can at least try to address the ones that are absurd, but we can have everything sort of talked about. A lot of these movements that are going on, critical race theory is probably noteworthy, most noteworthy, but all, there's a lot more than just that. Um, are you coming up with their own language? It's coming up with things that nobody knows what it means because they're making it overly complex so that dialogue doesn't happen, that there's a that you can identify who's in the camp and who's not by language. These are techniques that have been used by tyrants throughout. It, 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 has, a, it has a history of, of creating new language as to how we interact. And so, I, you know, to me, if we had to narrow down the things that was your first question at the beginning of our dialogue, what scares me about, like, what is changing, point to what is the boogeyman that I see it is that all these things are sort of intertwined and that this is freedom of speech and our ability to really address it is being attacked by cancel culture, by censorship, and in some cases, even by the law. Um, and, and, and emotionalism is taking over rationality. Uh, that is, um, yeah. Well, again, I just think more people have a voice and, you know, the promise of, of social media and now they're they're suppressing some speech. It, it's, it's just so complex because you're talking about, you know, if everyone were empathetic, empathetic is such an advanced concept. It is so difficult to be empathetic to someone who has a different experience than you do, in my opinion. I, I you know, do you I think so. I think it's an extremely- If I see somebody in pain, I mean, unless I'm a sociopath, okay? Mm -hmm. If I see somebody in pain, I feel pain. I feel empathy. If I, if I see somebody, so the, the way to address the racial empathy in the past was desegregation. If everybody just had a friend or they had colleagues, this would go away. That was the theory you know, when I was young, when I was a kid. I was, it was not always well played out with busing and different reasons, but the whole theory was let's get everybody together and empathy will take over. We're going the opposite way in that, in that regard as well. We're putting, we're, we're going now toward, you know, 
racial only groups and 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 it's 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 a it's not the solution but i think empathy generally if i'm a social if i'm not a sociopath i i hate to see somebody cry <laughs> i you know I, I hate to see um i love to see somebody in you know laughing it, it's contagious um i have a hard time doing that over twitter or i have a hard time doing that without visuals or without the physical world. And that's one of the differences between the media. I'm not saying all the social media is bad. I think the points you're making are great that voices that aren't, you know, we go to those meetings and we're the ones talking because I'm, I talk a lot, you know, and there's shyer people that are more deliberative with their thoughts. And you do want to bring those out. I, I think it has that potential, but it's degenerated from there into the one with the largest megaphone. And then these cliches and some of these things are replacing real thought. Like people, you ever talk to people that they just speak in cliches? Like you don't know what, you don't even know what the cliche means, do you? <laughs> well, and I just know it's what I'm supposed to say. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think that is unfortunately a, a more common, I mean, I think that is a human thing is I don't want to have to actually put brain power into actually thinking what I'm saying. I'll just latch onto this, concept and throw it out there yeah and i think that is a problem that's a form of empathy you know just finding what's acceptable and what's palatable to the other group but i do think um i still think empathy is um, a really hard thing to practice and that might be something that's just kind of ingrained in you because even speaking to your relationship i can probably imagine there are a number of people that didn't pursue a relationship simply because their friends and family would not agree with that's just too hard of a too yes. big of a hurdle to jump so, I mean, I still think it's a really hard concept to practice, especially, practice, especially you know, if you are a, a quieter person, um, more conservative, you know, like you probably would like to uh, be more empathetic and if you see someone in pain, you'd probably want to feel more pain for that person, but you probably have conditioned yourself to not do that because it hasn't been shown to you throughout out your life because you've just been sm smaller of stature, just quieter in, in personality. Um, so I really think it is a, a difficult thing to to practice because it, it goes back to like um, it's I think it's been associated for so long with weakness in America. Well, I think I mean, so I want to be clear, like racial sensitivity training, if it's really that is great. And I think there are many ways to do that. And most of it is get people together. I really do mm, believe agreed. that. Um, but, yeah, I grew up in a black neighborhood. I kind of grew up um, at a time where there was a lot of racial stuff going on. And when I was a kid, like there was the sixties, essentially. I mean, I grew up, mm -hmm. I, was, I'm six, I was born in 64. So walking to school and, and all my friends that I had were, were, were black kids. And, and at that time, I didn't even know that was a thing. And then all of a sudden I went to the white Catholic school and all of a sudden, really even the white Catholic school wasn't bad. When I went to high school, oh my God, the racial segregation was big. And, and everybody sat at one table that was black. Everybody sat at one table that was white. And these were kids, like these were friends of mine that we went to school with in grade school. And so um, racial sensitivity and getting that right is definitely worth worthwhile. And so I, I want to make sure I, I, I'm not, a, I, I'm not, I think all that we need to do more of. So empathy for where somebody comes from and they don't know what it means when you walk in a room and people kind of look at you twice. I mean, I, I, 
I got it when I started dating Stephanie and we were in the Midwest and I lived in different parts of the South. Midwest was worse than the South, ironically. And even Southern California was like Orange County was two places that wouldn't rent to us. And I'm like, you know, the lady was above us and she came down and, you know, so you, you like all of a sudden, wow, that's, that's empathizing with something I didn't experience before. I didn't know that people were really that way, but I'm like, I, you know, I knew people were jerks at different levels, but yeah, to feel it um, is a, would be a great thing for everybody to sort of experience to some level. It's not the same as critical race theory. It's not the right. same as grouping people. It's not, and it's, it's, it's not saying you have inherent evil because you don't have that background. It just means try to empathize with this other group that you don't really understand that well because you right. grew up in an upper middle class white play and you only saw the only black guy you saw was like a, a certain type of black guy that was all, all fitting into the group and spoke the way you did and everything else. And you get out of that comfort zone. You don't know what you're dealing with. So, I mean, you know, so empathy in that regard, I think we, we got some work to do. I just think though, that generally people that interact are more empathy, have more empathy than those that don't I think we ought to, there's things we can do to bring out the people that don't have a voice. Um, and maybe to the extent social media can do that, I'm all in. But don't censor. Let's not kill speech. And then let's accept people that are different and say different things. I mean, if they got bad ideas, they'll lose the argument eventually. Mm -hmm. um, let's hear them, though. Right, right. I, I, I completely agree. There, have, there has to be more constructive conversations. Um, and you have to be willing to to hear uncomfortable ideas uh, from both sides. Um, Can I ask you, so I, I started listening to some of your previous podcasts. I didn't get through them. I got real busy, but I was trying to listen to them today to kind of, and um, you had some folks that were on, I don't remember who it was that were against interracial marriage or were, were well, where does that line of thinking come from? Yeah, that's um. Yeah, I do have some friends of that school of thought, and I and I think it's. It, well, I I don't think it it stems from. The history of America, and I and I I'm I, for those who said that, I hope I'm not, misrepresenting, their ideas, but it's just, dealing with so much uh, discrimination, racism, oppression over years and years. Uh, my buddy, a buddy of mine. Um, he came down and he interviewed one of his, uh, his biracial buddies. You know, he grew up in Texas also when it was, when segregation was just, uh, just kind of ending, you know? And so he was a, a mixed guy, light-skinned black guy, but, you know, going over to his friend's house and, and the father saying, Hey, I think you're a real nice guy, but you're never going to date my daughter. You know, having to grow up with that, I think, you know, it just, and you're experiencing it over and over and over and over again. And if you don't have enough time to decompress in between those periods of uh, judgments, then it, it causes you to be callous. You, you build up a callous and you don't want to let anything in that represents or seems to represent the group that was oppressing you. Yeah, but you're describing how one could get to that point it would sort of be like describing why i may maybe would have said well my father is saying this i don't want to create but don't we want to encourage people to to go with their better angels i mean don't we want to encourage 
I mean, in my case, I, I don't know. I, I didn't care. I mean, I, I, I knew it was the wrong, it was the right thing. And I like this girl. I don't care. So maybe I just had a different way, but I mean, let's say it was something that was hard for me to overcome. Cause I don't really think that was hard for me to overcome. I'm, I'm not, I'm not a, I'm not good. I'm not influenced by my parents. If they're saying something that's wrong and I'm just wrong. And, um, but if it were hard, I would hope like, Hey, the right thing is to go this direction. Yeah. I might lose some relationships with my parents, but I'm going to go this direction. Same thing with, with this is I'm callous based on this history, maybe justifiably so because of bad things happened to me or my nephew who had some, you know, these bad, very bad things happened to him. Um, that the less the, the message needs to be resist that that temptation to fall into the damage of your past. Uh, so to 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 then embrace the idea that we don't want interracial relationships, it's just I just don't understand why that's a good goal to shoot for. It might be one is inherent in you. And you might say, I'm not going to date somebody out of my race just because I have this, this in my background or I have this, this pain. And that's your, 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 your prerogative. Not everybody has to have the same preferences, but to say that it's a bad thing for black people and white people to marry intermarry. I, I don't understand that. I mean, I, again, I guess it gets back to this idea. Am I part of a group or am I an individual? Mm-hmm. I'm not, I mean, I don't, I, I don't sit here holding a flag of the white people of America, or I don't hold a flag of, you know, uh, Irish descendants. I mean, the IRA did horrible things. I'm not going to go back and say I'm for the, I'm here as in who I am. And if I like this girl, I'm going to date this girl. I'm, and if I really like her, I'm going to marry her. And if I you know, if I don't, I'm, I'm going to do what, you know, I'm going to go on to the next thing. I'm an individual. So it, it, to me, everything kind of boils down to that. Are you, are you looking at things as an individual? Are you assessing all the things and then making the decision based on the right, at least what you perceive as best you can, the right thing to do? And so how do you get to that conclusion and say, well, I'm, you know, I, I'm against interracial marriage. I mean, who cares? Mm-hmm. I mean, why, why would you care? Like, okay, maybe that's not my choice, but why would anybody say, well, I, you can't do that either, or you shouldn't do that either? Yeah, and I agree with you, because I, I think I agree that eventually everyone should try to strive to a point where they start thinking as an individual. But I think the example that you gave um, about like, oh, I have to have a tough conversation with my parents and it's going to create some distance, like how difficult that is even just in, even like in a, a parent uh, child dynamic, just going against the grain and losing the emotional support of your parents. You know, the, you know, I'm sure deep down in your heart, you know, you know, they're both going to love each other, but some people don't, aren't even willing to risk that emotional detachment from their parents, just simply by saying something uh, going against them. I know a number of families you know, where the, you know, their child, their child is in the thirties and forties, and they still won't bring up uh, conversations to their parents about, you know, just the ideas that they have. And, it, and it's interesting. And a lot of it's like STEM and culture, but I, I think that speaks volumes about how hard it is to detach, like from your emotions 
and just how important it is to a lot of people to um, to to risk losing someone in their losing the support of someone close in their life, even as for a temporary uh, period of time. To me, I, I feel it's important for me to speak up and speak my mind to like, you know, my, my close family and friends. And, you know, if they disagree with me and they feel like they need to take some distance or space from me, that's something that I'm willing to accept. I, I understand because it, yeah. it is more important for me to stand on my independent thoughts rather than if I know that, you know, rather than, you know, go along with um, a family or friend simply because it just makes things more accommodating. But yeah, I mean, I think there's two thoughts there. One is the individual struggle that you're, you're articulating. And I would argue uh, on that, on that point, I would say if you bury, if you carry that with you, it'll stay with you. If you don't address it, what doesn't get addressed doesn't go away. It just right. embeds itself and comes out as cancer somewhere later. I'm not, right. not metaphorical cancer. Mm -hmm. um, so if you don't address the, the elephant in the room, the elephant doesn't go away. It actually mm -hmm. gets bigger. Um, so that's just a personal thing, but no, I, I'm just even talking about, well, okay, I don't want to marry somebody outside my race because of the my family won't accept it. That's my individual choice. Fine. But I'm just saying to take a position that, and, and that interracial marriage is, is detrimental to society to some level is coming from, is coming from the left now. I don't know what you would want to call it progressive i don't even know what it's not even left right thing i don't know but it's coming from the black community now some in some cases uh that are the ones the the the, the community that's sort of embedded with this critical race theory concept in that it's co committing genocide to the group to you know that it's almost like the black person is rejecting their race by diluting it and all of a sudden we're all going to kind of look sort of light-skinned white people or light-skinned black people. Um, that's where a lot of that is coming from. And, and I, again, it's this concept of I've got some obligation to my group, my race. I have no obligation to my race, none. I have an obligation to marry the best person I can find. And I have obligation to my kids and I have an obligation to do the right thing. So I, I just w would love to have a conversation with somebody that had the opposite point of view on that as to why there's a defense of the group or certainly of the race. I mean, I, I, you know, you might want to defend people that have the same values as you, obviously, you know, I have values and I want to defend these values. And so it might be detrimental to the values of the family or, but defending a race to me is, is, is the antithesis of what I think we should be trying to do. I, I just want to, I, I don't understand where that idea is coming from. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I, I think it just comes from centuries of, of oppression, you know, like literally just not being able to, for instance, if you're a dark skinned black person mm -hmm. with dreads and you're walking through, you know, an affluent white neighborhood, you're probably going to get some looks just feeling like sure. um, that you can't go anywhere without being, without judgment being passed on. You know, I, I, for the most part, can pretty much walk around anywhere and feel like nobody gave me a second look. 
you know, it's like I've tried to wave at people like, hey, how are you today? You know, like, give me a little bit of attention. I'd like some. Um, You're but, a good looking guy. You get lunch. You know, I think, I think it's mostly because, you know, I, you know, maybe sometimes my tattoo, they're like, that, that's probably why I get my looks. No, but, but, but the dreadlock, the dreadlocked uh, example that you're giving is, is, is why it, so how so how does that manifest itself into a belief that I don't want to dilute the race? I mean, that that's an example of pain that can come from an uncomfortable situation that shouldn't mm-hmm. be there. But how does that then translate into a belief? Well, because this pain exists through history or even through present, why do I advocate for don't make sure you only marry within your race? Right, right, and let's and I and I, and I think maybe the best way that I would think to explain it might be staying with the example of like, you know, someone with the dreads, you know, if they're walking, if they're going to predominantly white school, or, you know, they're walking through a predominantly white supermarket, you know, they might get, or at work, they might get lots of questions, like, and they might not even be um, uh, mean questions, but it's like, oh, oh, that's different. Or how, how do you do that? Just, or, or what do you do with your hair? Just like a, a curious, like, cause, oh, that's different. That's different. That's different. You know, and you get that, you know, day in and day out or week in and week out, but repeatedly. And let's say, you know, whenever that person goes back to, um, you know, where I where I grew up in or not grew up, where I lived for the past pretty much 10 years uh, in Southern California, where my grandfather's house is, it's right next to Lamert Park, a historically black neighborhood, you know, and you and if you're a dark skinned black person with dreads, the interactions that you're going to get are probably like, oh, where do you get your dreads done? Oh, your dreads look so good. Oh, that's so good. How long have you been growing your your locks? And it's less from an objective uh, standpoint of curiosity and more of acceptance. And it's just like, it's like rather than people questioning, even if it's it's um comes from a good place, it's still a question because it's like, oh, well, I'm not sure if I like that or not because it's different for me. It comes from a place of the questions are coming from a place of acceptance. Like, I like that. That's different. That's dope. And so I think when you're when you're coming uh, and again, that that builds up and I think it's like, OK, I just feel safer in this group. I feel more comfortable in this group. And eventually you're just going to want to spend more of your time and in that group, you know, and then you say, I want to spend uh, my life with someone from this group who understands. So you're not having to constantly articulate why you choose a certain style or defend why you choose a certain style. I think that's where it comes from because it can be draining to constantly articulate why you choose to to do something rather than um, just explaining to someone for someone who wants to follow in your footsteps. That's good explanation. That makes So would you think that the same people that would defend that position have a problem with a white guy from Appalachia that doesn't want his daughter having or his, his daughter marrying a black guy? Um, they probably some of them would be like, "Yeah, that's fine. I completely get it." And they wouldn't be like, "Yeah, <laughs> over there, right. <laughs> they, they'd be fine." Yeah, there are still some of my, my friends and even family who uh, support segregation. They're like, "No, it'd be yeah. great." Black people have their own space and white people have their own space and we all lived happily ever after. They would still support that. I don't necessarily support that. Um, but I, they, they would, a lot of them would probably be like, yeah, that's great. Do, do you. But I think where that comes from, it's, uh, it's like, I guess, the, the number of places that that white person can go and feel accepted versus the number of places that the black person can go and feel accepted. 
Yeah, I know. But the, the white person from their perspective is saying, you know, it's uncomfortable for me, uh, let's say, as the Appalachian white guy with my banjo or whatever I got um, sitting on the, bo- the porch to have uh, my, my neighbors, my friends are going to say something. I need you to don't, don't bring home somebody that's going to make me feel uncomfortable. I mean, uh, comfort is in the eye of the beholder. <laughs> right, right. And, and, and to some extent, you could justify everything from comfort. I mean, life's not comfortable. I, I, I don't think on an individual level, again, kind of moving from macro to individual, which those are two separate conversations, macro and individual. But at the individual level, I would tell my kids if they had those kind of views that don't take the comfortable path. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's, you know, you want to make a good life. Don't, well, I mean, don't pick the most comfortable path. It, it, it's not the way to grow. It's not the way to actually get to happiness. Take the hard, do the hard things, do them well as best you can. And then happiness and accomplishment is greater achieved from that. If you follow the easy path all the time, you're going to, you're going to end up, you're going to end up miserable and frail. Right. Um, but anyway, I, you know, that's an individual thing. Um, do you, on the free speech issue, do you hold the same belief that I do that, free speech is under assault or is a sacred value. I mean, there's this discussion these days where there's hate speech and then there's, there's, and and I I would argue there is no such thing as hate speech. Um, That, that that, that there is speech that incites violence. There's speech Mm -hmm. that is criminal, which is defined but the concept of hate speech, which is just ingrained bad ideas or that I'm just a bigot or whatever is, um, it's not me, I'm just saying, (laughs) the figurative me is is my right to be a bigot. And I kind of like to live in a country where the bigots are identified. Mm -hmm. I kind of like to know if I go in a place that guy's, you know, Got the Confederate flag. At least I know where he's coming from. Right. <laughs> no, Confederate yeah. flag's not always what it means. I mean, but I'm just mm-hmm. saying he's mm-hmm. holding the. If he had a, a, you know, he had the Nazi symbol on him. At least I know where he's coming from. I don't have to. I don't have to figure it out. Um, and I think in a country, again, because I think freedom is so much more important than uncomfortableness. Um, I, I hold that value sacred, and, and so therefore he should be as bigoted as he wants to be, as long as he doesn't harm me. Right, and that that I support. You know, like I think Trump uh, being elected president was good for America because he gave the bigots more confidence to speak out, and it, it you know he just magnified what was already there. Um, and, and and if it's magnifying what's already there, it's going to force conversations. And that's why we're having these conversations now. And I think that's a valuable thing. But yeah, I, I think that's where it comes. It's with, um, you know, any, any bigots that exist or racists that exist. Like, I think the fear with that is that that can easily lead to more violence. Because I completely agree that like, free speech is a, is a sacred value of our country. But you you really have to to make sure that it's not leading to violence or destruction of property even. Well, I mean, so a direct incitement is, but anything short of a direct incitement may lead to violence because it rouse somebody up, but 
it also may be the way that everybody suppresses the the powerful suppress some speech they don't want to hear. And I don't think pushing it underground makes the violence go away. Um, right, right. In fact, it, it festers and they, it, it, particularly in the internet age, you're not going to stop people from engaging, mm-hmm. even if you wanted to. And I, I would not want to. I don't want to live in, in China. I, I want to live in a country where there is a little risk, but I'm free. I, I'd rather live in freedom with some danger than no danger or safety, but locked as a slave. Mm-hmm. You know, or locked away, um, which is what I think China, North, certainly North Korea is. But um, you know, uh, you know, for example, fair. I mean, there is a lot of bigotry on all sides. I, I mean, a Farrakhan is certainly certainly espouses bigotry toward Jews, toward well, whites, everybody. Yet he's, he has free reign. He's still, I think he still has his Twitter account and all that. Um, I, I, I want him to have it. But, but, he's, but bigotry is, there's a lot of bigotry going around these days. And um, um, it just seems like the, the censorship is all on the right. And, it, and it's a characterization. I think it's largely a characterization. Um, and I think a lot of it is, is driven by power, the powerful wanting to direct a narrative more than it is to protect society from some perceived threat. Uh, say that last part again. You think it's more? Well, about- I, I think it's mostly. Yeah. So all the censorship, if you look at then we could switch from race or any of these things to, you know, COVID. The idea that somebody said, well, you know what, that there's this. Wuhan lab, and I think it came from there. The plausibility that that's where the virus came from is very high. And there was a bunch of doctors, they all got censored until recently for some reason. And I think it's because there's things coming out now that make it pretty obvious that it it was the Wuhan lab. Why would that be censored? Why wouldn't that idea be able to be presented, vetted, and just shared? And then, hey, I don't agree with that, but that's one idea. Nobody knows. And that was, and, there, there, and now you're starting to find all kinds of email interactions that say that there was a suppression of that speech because of some agenda. And you can speculate on the agenda from Fauci on down. So we can't have that. We can't have that. And um, ideas that come from other things. I, so my, my statement was, I think it all has agenda as to why censorship is happening. It's not because they're trying to be magnanimous and protect people from, you know, uh, some Nazi that will shoot somebody because they got riled up. Um, I literally don't think many of those people exist, uh, but even if they did, it's not why they're censoring. They're censoring because they wanted to have one narrative go out. And certainly in the COVID case, I think you can make that argument. I think there's a lot of other cases you could make that argument. But certainly the COVID and the lab story now is full circle. Mm, yeah, yeah, because I mean, again, protecting free speech is important. Um, but like, I don't know. You, you just have to be very careful about making sure that this free speech on whatever side or on whatever extreme it is, that it doesn't. Uh, devolve into violence and that 
But how does uh, the, the, the scenario of talking about the Wuhan lab as being the source of the virus, which people were a year ago and they were censored, doctors were. I think that's a problem. Yeah, that, that, and, that, that's a problem. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and um, um, no, I just lost my train of thought. <laughs> I had another great example. Oh, <laughs> come on. Maybe we'll come back to you. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of examples of where, you know, things that uh, seem to have an agenda behind them. And that's the problem with censorship. It never goes, that's the problem with most of this stuff. It always sounds like, well, it's well-intended, and maybe it is first, but it's always degenerates into the powerful using it for their own purposes and their, their agendas. And I'm not, a, I'm not saying all powerful people are doing wrong things, but it's pretty much power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely is, is a really good axiom. And, you know, big tech for net right now in the media is so powerful, uh, big tech in particular, they can, sh- they can shut down your servers, they can, and they did. Um, they're, they're wielding that power in ways that I think should scare every good liberal, should scare any leftists that used to argue the corporations were the, the evil, which they, they kind of are now and they're coupled with government. Um, so I, I really think whatever disagreements everybody has on what side of the fence they're on, what, what, uh, what, you know, what race we are or anything, I would hope we can all come together on let's all vet it out. Let's keep the conversation going. Let's not have something called free speech thrown away in the bathwater of critical race theory with critical race theory. Let's not bundle these really good things just because they came from a, you know, a slave owner back in the day, Thomas Jefferson or something articulated something about speech. Let's not throw away what is essentially the only solution we have for going forward other than descending into tyranny. Um, if we start protecting speech that we don't like, who, when the person gets in power that you don't like, you're going to have your speech curtailed. Mm-hmm. It's not going to stop, you know. And if we, so those things are really to me the things that we all need to come together on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I agree completely that we have to have conversations uh, with about these tough topics it's just the issue like any when you have when we're talking about free speech um it's like usually these extremes and when the extremes are talking they're not really interested in hearing the other side but it doesn't mean it needs to be censored it doesn't need it to be well and i'm not even i mean that's not the speech i'm really worried about i mm-hmm. think it's hard to draw the line so that's the examples that are used the, the free speech that i'm talking about is political speech is the speech about the, the wuhan lab the speech about um you know, if I, for example, quoted you CDC statistics that say taking the vaccine, if you're an 18 year old male, particularly somebody that's already had COVID, you have a disproportionate, a highly, there, there's, there's studies showing that heart disease, myochondria, or whatever's coming from that. And, and the CDC has announced this, just quoting the CDC statistics would get you censored. Yeah, that's a problem. That's yeah, it, it's staying away from the message because they think it's their job to treat us like children and make sure that we're all, you know, and I got the vaccine. I'm not an anti-vaxxer or anything like that because I'm, you know, I'm 50, almost seven year old dude. I mean, the risk to me were higher than the, the, the negative aspects of it. But if I'm an 18 year old kid, 
my daughter who had it already, I'm not suggesting she get it. Anyway, the point being, why can't we make those decisions for ourselves? Don't, you know, just get the information to us. We'll make good decisions. We'll make the decisions for ourselves. I think, I think there's this new line of thinking with the powerful, especially big tech, that there are parents and they're going to feed us what, what we should be fed so that we're all, we all stay in line for whatever agenda or whatever reason. And I think we all should rebel against that. White, black, left, right. We need to stop that because it will come for us someday. It'll come. Maybe it's coming for your enemy now, but it'll come for you next. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. Cancel culture is the same thing. Stop the cancel. Let's just stop. <laughs> uh, the cancel culture is a little different. You know, that's that's free speech. That's free speech. It's mob rule, though. It's still free speech. Uh, sure. So I don't want the government to stop cancel culture. I don't want somebody to, to mm -hmm. be arrested for canceling somebody. That's not what I'm saying. But we need to we need we need to train. You know, we need to shame it into the, the ash pile of history. It's it's corrosive. Let people. You need to have redemption. Some people say stupid things. Some people did stupid things in their past. They shouldn't be condemned by the mob. We don't want to have Salem witch trials. We don't want to have, and the internet is empowering and enabling a Salem witch trial and a modern version of it that, oh, so-and-so, it may, so-and-so may not even said that or meant that the context is out of play. And there's all kinds of examples of that, but the, the mob can, can destroy somebody some, many times with an agenda, many times just because of out of ignorance, but that's, that's we're going back to Salem witch trials if we're going to accept that as a society. Now, do I, like I said, I'm not talking about throwing somebody in jail for that, but we as a culture need to really shame, and I think shame has a place in culture, shame that activity of canceling almost in most in almost all cases. Let individuals shame each other let individuals make decisions the mob should not be telling me who i who should be canceled and who should right. mm, yeah it's a, form I, of, it's a form of suppression of speech uh, you're not going to have anybody speak out i, I had somebody i said hey, i'm going to go on a podcast tonight and they're like oh dave don't don't talk on don't talk on any kind of recorded line <laughs> like, you know, maybe I'm like, yeah, I run my own business. I'm not, I don't, I, don't I, 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 you know, I speak my mind, whatever. And I don't think I'm offensive, but um, like, oh, somebody's going to take it out of context. If they become your enemy somehow, they're going to take something, record it, take it out of context. And you're going to be sitting somewhere and like, I didn't mean that. I didn't mean that. And like, I, like that can't be done. Yeah. <laughs> well, is that, is that a threat? So that, if I believed that was a real threat, I wouldn't be talking to you. Right. That's right. suppression of the dialogue. And we don't want to suppress this. I agree. You don't want to suppress dialogue. And I think what is what we're seeing today with, with cancel culture, it's an overcorrection. I think, again, with the with the development of social media, it's giving a voice to people who have felt unheard for a very long time for whatever reason they've just felt like they've never had a platform or that when they have spoken out in a public setting that they've been shamed or you know just made to feel unimportant and i think that's what it is the fact that so many people are latching on to this maybe reverse bullying 
that it's very yeah bullying was bad reverse bullying is bad racism Mm -hmm. is bad reverse rate all all let's let's i mean i think when we say it's an overcorrection i kind of take exception at work because it's going in a different direction it's not just a you know a bigger push in one direction it's going in the exact opposite direction it's Mm -hmm. saying that those that didn't have a voice now have the voice to trample on somebody else that they they have the right to do that for some reason and I, i i don't think i think the idea that they have a voice is not tempered by somebody by canceling somebody else does not give them any more of a voice it just allows them to trample on somebody else and suppress voices it actually allows them to suppress other voices that they either find offensive or in many cases that they just want to suppress for whatever reasons right Um, and it's it's but i think for the people that are doing it it's that illusion that it's putting them in a better place you know, it's that illusion that we're, we're shaming someone else to lift ourselves up. It's like, they've just done something that's extreme, but that's, yeah, that's, that's kind of where I think it's at. Yeah. Well, I, I am getting calls from my wife. I, I, I figured that I knew we went way over our planned hour. Yeah, so. you're, a good, you're a good man to talk to. You do a good job of this. You got, you got to, this, I don't I don't know if you've been doing this for a while, but uh, you got a good voice for it, and you you uh, you asked good questions, and I enjoyed it. Thanks, Dave. I appreciate you joining, and I look forward when we get to catch up again. Maybe grab a drink and go right back at it. All right, sounds good, man. Have All right, Dave. One. Take it easy. Take it easy.